Welcome to the Indie Writer Podcast by Writing Block, where we talk all things writing and indie publishing. I'm Becca Spence-Dobias, and I'm going to be talking with guests Quinton Collins, Assistant Director of the Solstice Low Residency MFA in Creative Writing, and Gail Brandeis, faculty member at Sierra Nevada University and Antioch University, about low residency and distance MFA programs. How's everyone doing today? Um, pretty good. Yeah, trying not to breathe in too much smoke. Yeah, same here. <laughs> We're here in Southern California, about 10 miles away from the El Dorado fire. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm up in North Lake Tahoe, not too close to the fires, but the smoke is being swept into our little valley here. I guess that's kind of relevant to what we're talking about, because for these kinds of programs, you can often just stay in your own home, which makes them more convenient or more accessible during times when you can't go out, whether due to fires or or because of global pandemics. So could both of you, maybe let's start with Quentin. Can you tell listeners a little bit about your work? Sure. So um, in terms of the Solstice program, I actually was a student uh, there first. And then about a year after I graduated, I became the assistant director. And so I've been there uh, for about a year now. And much of the work I do is involved with the community aspect of the program, um, whether that's engaging with our alumni or actually finding new students, uh, running a lot of our recruiting strategies, especially in terms of trade shows. So for instance, when we're at AWP, we also do some local events here, um, like Boston Book Fest. And so I coordinate a lot of those aspects of the program outside of some of the logistics and the nuts and bolts of running our biannual residencies. And then beyond that, you know, I, I, I write where I can, like we all do, uh, mostly poetry these days, but of course, banking into some new genres wherever I can. And I know you've gotten creative with some of the events you're doing, the one I attended online about social justice and writing. So you've been doing some neat programming. Yeah, it's a, you know, a new world we're in in terms of event space. When the pandemic started, you know, Twitter was abuzz with so many writers who had to cancel events or events were being canceled for them. And so we really just saw a lack of things happening for maybe a few weeks. And then suddenly there's the explosion of, wait a minute, we all have Zoom. So let's host our events over Zoom. And it's been a, for our community in particular, because we're a low-res program and we have students in so many places. It's been a great way to engage audiences that we typically can't reach um, for people who can't get out to Boston during our bi- biannual residencies for on-campus events. And, you know, it's it's definitely changed the game in some good ways. And it's, you know, it's, it's a new challenge. It's technology and it's a bit to manage while also trying to run the event itself. But, you know, again, I think it's it's created so many new opportunities for our industry that I can see Zoom-based readings going forward, even when we're back to a point of being in person. Yeah, I hope so. It's a way to get to attend things that aren't local. But speaking of local events, Gail, your <laughs> your reading that I participated in was the last like actual event I did, I think, before <laughs> before everything shut down. Yes. That was my last event as well. And I had to cancel about half of my book tour after that when everything shut down and I got sick myself. And so it just, um, yeah, it was not a time to be out in the world. And I'm 
so grateful that that was my last event. It was such a powerful, moving event to be able to experience this book that I wrote in a choral way with so many voices, including your own. That was um, that was such an intense and amazing experience for me. So if that is my last live reading ever, I think I can go to my grave satisfied. Yeah, it was really wonderful. And I'm kind of glad to have that as my last memory of the world. <laughs> um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your work and uh, specifically your teaching? Sure. Um, like Clinton, I teach where I went to school. I got my MFA at Antioch University in 2001 and was invited back to teach, I believe, in 2007. So I had been away for a few years. And that's a really wonderful MFA program, low residency MFA program that has a social justice focus, which is something that means so much to me. So I'm so grateful to be part of that program. I became part of another wonderful program as well in 2015. Um, I was invited up to Sierra Nevada University, which is, it used to be Sierra Nevada College. We changed our name to university last year. And um, I was invited up here in 2014 for what was supposed to be a one-year visiting writer gig. And six years later, I'm still here. We just fell in love with the place and didn't want to leave. And because I was on campus, I was invited to be part of the MFA residency that was happening that January. And then ended up you know, falling into a position in the faculty on a more permanent basis. And both programs are so wonderful. I love them both with all my heart. They each have their own special gifts, which I'm happy to talk about later. So I'm, I'm thrilled to be associated with both of them. I got my MFA in fiction, but I write in all the genres. So I mentor in both programs in a variety of genres, um, fiction, poetry, writing for young people, um, and creative nonfiction. Very cool. Thank you. So full disclosure, I'm in the process at the moment of applying for an MFA program. And I know that there's a lot of discussion on Twitter about, you know, is it needed? Is it helpful? Is it worth the cost? So I love that you are both students in your programs. Could you maybe talk about what the benefits are? And even especially, I'd love to hear like personally, how has getting an MFA benefited you? I can start with that one. I was working in a marketing company before I had this role. And I was there for six years before I started. And I was in the editorial department. And the thing about working in marketing writing is you're not talking about writing. Um, we had a team of maybe 60 plus writers in our Chicago office. And it was such a weird thing to be talking about revenue and units um, all day and not actually talking about the thing we're functionally doing. And you know, also getting to the point where people really weren't excited about the functional thing that we were doing. So, um, you know, there was a period where I was like, hey, I want to keep writing poems. You know, I need to do this um, when I'm on my train, going to work and coming back. And I need to be reading poetry books and reading everything else because I want to stay engaged. So, of course, the extension of that, the natural progression is that you ask some people to get together, form a writing group, exchange some work you know, doing it remotely. So through Google Drive at first, and then maybe having some meetups. And 
you know, the great thing about writers is, you know, writers are great for giving you feedback, but the bad thing about writers is writers are bad for giving you feedback. <laughs> so, um, you know, I would, I would put a lot of time in a lot of time into my, my peers work and I wouldn't really get any feedback. So around that point, I started applying for MFA programs. And for me, I was someone who, you know, like a lot of people, health insurance is a necessity. So I knew that while I considered some full res options, I also really was probably leaning towards low res. And the reason I found Solstice is my director, Matt Carney, is good friends with my first mentor, Mark Turcott. And so I met Meg back in 2011, 2012, because I was running a student organization in my undergrad college in Chicago, and I brought her out to read. And later that night, when we're all just celebrating, you know, great reading and all that, she tells me about Solstice and she says, you know, if you're ever looking for a program, um, feel free to reach out. And I mean, at the time I was like 21 and I had, you know, got to the point where I was like, I'm going to go get an MFA eventually, you know, but I'm going to go see the world or, you know, have some experience to liven up my writing a bit. And then I'm going to think about it. So I kind of pushed it to the side. And around that time when I was, you know, working at this marketing company, not getting any feedback, I was like, I really need to talk to people about writing who care about writing. And I need to be involved in the community. But you know, again, I need to still be able to work this full time job that I have. And I applied to a few places and I got into solstice. And, you know, from the point that I was accepted, I could tell there was a real investment in my work. And I got to see that a lot when I got into the program. And you start to realize, you know, who was part of the committee. Um, to make the decision on, you know, whether or not you get in or, and they still remember who you are and what you've been doing. And for me, that was the biggest thing. Uh, you know, low res has this feel sometimes of, you know, maybe you're really working alone a lot because of the fact that during the semester you're back at home. Uh, maybe you're having some contact with your peers and of course you're coordinating with your mentor, but then you get back together with people every six months and, you know, from your first residency, you're meeting complete strangers. And by the last day, you're weeping because you have to leave them. You know, it's a, it's a powerful experience that I think that a full res program has some of, but, um, you know, it's a unique thing. And I think it's the setup of having that space where I can come to it every six months and then go back and really do what I have to do now, which is have a full-time job and then try to find time to write was definitely the biggest benefit for me. You know, I, I still have some lifelong friends. I have, you know, one of my friends, I text him every day, it seems to talk about something about writing, um, but we're out, you know, living our separate lives. So that was the thing that really drew me to grad school in general, and specifically to the low res um, prospect was, you know, the fact that a lot of us need to keep jobs to eat. And, um, but at the same time, we don't want to put off finding that community as we learn to be stronger writers. Yeah, I love that. It, it, it almost reminds me of like the summer camp feeling where you make these intense bonds with the people you're thrown into an intense situation with. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it is very much like that. And that truly is one of the greatest gifts of an MFA program. I um, found that one of my, my dearest friends from my MFA experience is still one of my dearest friends 20 years later, and we continue to be first readers of one another's work. This is Lorraine Herring. I want to give a shout out to her. Uh, it's been really 
an exciting process to share that MFA experience and then watch each other's work go out into the world, you know, help support one another and help each other shape one another's work. And we just discovered in workshop that we really resonated with one another's work and that we gave each other feedback that hit home. And she was one of the greatest gifts of my MFA experience. So I often tell my students, if they meet someone in the program who's whose work they connect with and whose feedback they appreciate to hold on to that person for dear life because it's such a gift to have that kind of connection in the literary world and that kind of lifeline. I came to the MFA program because fiction had started pouring out of me after my daughter was born. I've been writing since I was a little kid and starting in high school, really focused on poetry throughout high school and my undergrad. And then when this fiction just started coming to me, um, I really didn't know what I was doing. I wrote three first drafts of three different novels very quickly, and I had no idea how to revise them. I, um, I knew how to revise a poem, which is, you know, a nice economical <laughs> little chunk of language, but I had no idea how to revisit 300 pages of, of prose. And once I started writing the fourth novel, having not, you know, given the, the first three another look, I realized I need to have some tools in my writerly tool belt. I need to understand more about craft. I need to know how to talk about craft. And so I decided to look into MFA programs. And the low-res option felt like it would fit into my life the most. I had young children at home at the time, and it didn't feel as if I could really take the time to do an on-campus full-time program, but I could get away for 10 days twice a year with some help. And it ended up being the perfect fit for my family and my life at the time and gave me so much in terms of, you know, friends like Lorraine and also mentors who I am still in touch with. And, um, you know, it's, it's a wonderfully flexible type of education, as Quentin said. People who are working full-time can do it as long as they can get away for those two residencies a year. And it's a way of being able to commit to one's writing intensively for those couple of years. It's such a gift to give oneself to, to have that full, immersive, deep dive into craft and community and for a lot of people, um, I have students or have had students over the years who are in their 70s and have just waited a while to, to really give their writing the attention it deserves. Although there are some students who come fresh out of undergrad too, and which is great. It's a great diverse group of students with so many different life experiences. And, um, and low res allows you to weave your writing into whatever is happening in your life, which is really a good thing to be able to know how to do as a writer, because not many of us can afford to just write for a living. And so we have to figure out how to balance our writing with the rest of our life. And the low res option really helps helps one create that kind of practice and that, that life work balance. I was just going to say, you know, Gail brings up, you bring up a really good point about diversity of students. We also have, as we like to say, some students who are from maybe 24 until they don't want to talk about it anymore. And I think that the fact that the low res has so much flexibility in terms of scheduling, even for, you know, our retirees, 
it just allows you to hit a more diverse group of students. Um, if we're thinking also about, you know, some of the people who come from at-risk communities, you know, staying in school is what helps them, you know, have some stability, whether that be in terms of housing or in terms of, you know, just finances in general. So, you know, having to go back into a full res option where their, you know, time, the time they have available for um, financially supporting themselves, it presents a challenge when they have to be there um, so often and at a schedule that may not work with the work schedule that they need. And, you know, it just opens up so many, so many different worlds for people who have a lot of obligations. Cause um, yeah, we've had people who've had kids too, you know, um, my daughter's one now, but you know, if, if, if I had her when I was still in the program, I know that, you know, having that option to spend the majority of six months at a time at home with her would be great. You know, and I, I do it for work now where I'm working at the residency and it's still good. And I think it just opens up so many possibilities for those students who have just so many other types of obligations, or again, just, you know, a lot of people we've had who've had some very interesting careers. You know, we've had some people who are scientists to the highest degree. One of our alum is a Marine engineer. And, you know, when these people retire, they're like, you know, I'm doing so many different things. Maybe I'm traveling to another country for a few months at a time. And I don't want to be pinned down to a specific program. I just need to make sure that for these six months, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm ready to study. And then for about 10 days, I'm ready to come back. And um, we actually had a student who was in South America for a good chunk of her semester because her wife was in a PhD program that kind of had her traveling a bit. And, you know, she was able to do that because she was in a low-res program. So I think that, you know, that range of flexibility just, it, it welcomes so many people who otherwise would find a challenge. Absolutely. I have a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, and I wish that I had realized that programs like this were an option when they were younger. And I've been telling myself, like, when they're both in kindergarten, when they're both in kindergarten, like, then I'm going to look at MFAs. But then COVID happened and I was like, oh, maybe they'll never both be out of the house. I guess I should look at some other possibilities. It's nice to see that it's out there. Are there disadvantages? Are there, like, for example, are there students who might not be a good fit for a low-res program? Yeah, I think there are some students who maybe need more of a touchstone throughout the semester. Uh, an MFA program, um, a low-res MFA program, really requires a lot of self-directed learning and a lot of self-motivation because you have to figure out when you're going to fit your writing in. There are monthly deadlines instead of weekly deadlines. And for those people who feel like they need a bit more of, I don't know, an intense structure, um, maybe low res isn't right for them. Or if people just feel the need to be surrounded by other writers in a physical way um, in the classroom, you know, perhaps a low-res option wouldn't feel as satisfying because you're only together for those two residencies a year. So I think, you know, people have to think about what they want most out of their education and, you know, whether whether having those stretches of time to do your own work one-on-one -on -one with your mentor would be satisfying or whether you need more of a regular touchstone in the classroom. I have to agree with that. I believe that it's all about how much support you need how much you are also willing to grasp for yourself. 
So we encourage our students to be involved in their local literary communities, and many of them are already when they get into the program. Um, but that's one of the ways we try to help them keep a touch point with other writers in person when we're not having a residency, because that's you know the nature of what they're going to be doing after they graduate is they're going to have to engage their local community in certain ways for some kinds of uh, support, interaction, and engagement. And I think any student that knows that's not something they're most comfortable with, if they think that in terms of organization, they do well with a lot of support rather than less, um, you know, the low res option is likely not going to be the best for them. But in some cases, there are people who, you know, through the low res, they learn these skills too, you know, so it really depends on how much you feel you can get yourself into a routine, into a system, and not even just for something that's uh, consistent. You know, maybe it's something that um, mentally you're preparing yourself to create space. Uh, when I f- started the program as a student, my space for writing was waking up at 5 a.m. an hour before I have to get up for work and forcing myself to sit down and write something um, you know, one poem, just one poem every morning, and I have an hour to do it. And then as I got further along, and my work life changed, and also just my desire to get up at 5am disappeared, uh, what I would do is I would go to a coffee shop for about an hour and a half to two hours before work. And then now with my daughter, my process is I can't wake up early in the morning, because if I wake up, she wakes up. So after she goes to bed, I write, I edit, or I read during that time for the most part. And that's some of the stuff that you can learn. You know, it's not so much that like, you know, what your routine is going to be, but how do you create a routine? And so, you know, there are some students out there who are going to see, you know, maybe that's an obstacle they think they're going to face. But, um, you know, maybe the question is again asking, can you learn how to build a routine in the program? And you get a lot of that, not only through, you know, we actually at Solstice do a lot of work with um, coursework that kind of helps people understand, you know, like what it's like to be a writer after you leave, but also the interaction with mentors. You know, we encourage students to say like, you know, you can talk about your feedback, but just talk about what's happening in the world as being a writer. Um, Some of my conversations with my mentors were, you know, I work in a marketing company where sometimes it can be quarter to quarter as to whether or not people have jobs. And this is really working on my sanity someday. So, you know, how do I deal with this and deal with being a writer? You know, those are the opportunities that are there for people. And if they know they want to grasp at them and they know they want to have those interactions, you know, they definitely can have that. But some people, they just need that structure of like, you know, I know at this time every day, um, you during this week, I have somewhere I have to be where I'm going to be in the writing space. If that works better for you, you know, look into the full res option. It's going to give you that. And it's not something that you necessarily have to make sure you think to carve out. Um, it's been carved out for you and somebody else's, um, you know, setting the accountability schedule, so to speak. I love that you actually have classes or that you, you're actually talking about being a writer and not just about the craft of writing. That's really awesome. Yeah, I think that's so important to prepare writers for the writing life and for life after graduation so they don't feel lost, so they don't feel adrift without, you know, the anchor of the program. And um, at Antioch, we have weekly check-ins with mentor groups. And so every Sunday, so like today, um, 
We'll check in with each other online just to make sure how everyone's doing, what's going on in their writing life, what's going on in their life beyond, so that they do feel connected to community even while they're doing all their work at home and they know that they're not alone in their process. And that provides a wonderful sense of community that's built in the residencies, but then we are able to nourish through these weekly check-ins. I love that. I love that that all of the programs you're doing are doing that. And But like you're talking about writing, you're writing about personal things. Writing is such a personal thing. It's such a part of your life that it really feels inauthentic to pretend like nothing in life is happening. So that's really awesome. Do you have tips for finding funding for this kind of program? That's the tricky thing about low-res MFAs is they don't necessarily have the same kind of built-in funding that a lot of full residency programs do. I've been really happy to see that both programs where I teach are creating more scholarship opportunities, are both um, need-based and merit-based, and are trying to um, make it more accessible to more people because low residency programs are not cheap. When I was a student, loans were the only financial aid option. And so different, you know, look into what the programs you're interested in have to offer. Right now, both programs that I teach at are only offering partial scholarships, but there are other funding possibilities people can look into um, through state and national grants and loans and things like that. But it is, yeah, funding is definitely an issue in these programs. I know that Quentin can can speak to that as as director more than I can as faculty. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, from this perspective I was in when I was searching, um, I actually picked Solstice in terms of my final decision um, based on the faculty who I can work with and the affordability. Uh, compared to, I think it's Poets and Writers maybe has a whole chart of every low-res program and the tuition. And it basically came down to, at the end, you know, tuition. And, you know, you can't, you can't escape it. You can't escape the fact that you're, in, you're making an investment in your writing life that's, you know, not a small investment. And so Solstice offers several partial fellowships that students can apply for. Um, for winter and spring, for instance, they're all genre-based. So you don't have to do anything but apply and check a box to say you want to be considered. And it's based on you know the merit of your application. And then we also have uh, some need-based scholarships too, which of course, based on your financial aid information that you submit to the, the government. And the thing about that is, you know, the, the scholarship money that we have, you know, while it is need-based, it, it's, it's fundraised and it's fundraised, you know, largely by members of our community. Solstice alums and Solstice friends, family, we give back, you know, we give back to Solstice. We give back for what it's meant for ourselves and for people we know. And in terms of our fellowships, they're also underwritten. They're underwritten by members, you know, of our community or by people who are familiar with and know our community because we understand that that challenge is there. And I think, you know, beyond finding those opportunities that exist, in, especially in terms of finding them in a fully funded capacity, I, mean, I, I can't say it's not going to be a challenge, but um, as Gail said, you know, look for those national opportunities. I will heavily support the frequent use of FastWeb. 
even for, you know, graduate students. I know that it's a thing that a lot of high schoolers hear a lot about when they're going into undergrad, but there's some graduate opportunities out there. You know, they're not as easy to find, but they exist. And then also just looking into grants for writers, not only looking at ones that are on the national level, but look at local ones. You know, you're, the area you're in may have a literary society or organization or something that has a grant that's available that you can use towards education. And it's going to take time. You know, it's, it's going to take as much time as it's going to take you to apply to the different programs you want to get into. So you just have to kind of know that up front that you're going to have to maybe pick a Saturday where you're sitting down and just researching the opportunities and you're going to take several more to actually apply. But, you know, the opportunities are there. Um, it's, it's just going to take a lot of good Googling. Surprisingly, if you check uh, Wikipedia, Wikipedia weirdly has like some very thorough list of, you know, things from writing contests to funding opportunities for writers. And, you know, some of them may be dead end. Some of them may be things that, you know, the eligibility requirements are restrictive for, you know, who you are. But, you know, look into those resources for finding that funding that's out there. And, you know, if you're somebody like me who, you know, works in corporate or, you know, we get a lot of teachers, look into things like tuition reimbursement. Your job may have it. It might be something that's in your employee benefits that you're not aware of and see, you know, even if it's a percentage, see how much they're willing to cover. And also, depending on what you do, you might have to make a case for why the education is applicable. There's so much you can do with writing, uh, especially when you work in a corporate environment and you see how many people can't write emails, you know, make the case and uh, you can get some of that money back through your employer. That's really helpful. That's all great advice, both of you. Thank you. Uh, Do you have any tips for making your application stand out? You know, I think from my perspective with the applications we get, one of the simplest things I, I, I tell people when they're applying, and it's something that I also, you know, talk to people about when I was a hiring manager at my last job, I reviewed a lot of resumes and a lot of cover letters, interviewed a lot of people. And, you know, the simplest thing is just make sure that you're 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 talking about what you plan to do. And why you want to be in a specific place. I think people get lost in the, we get lost in the buzzwords. And we think that, you know, if I, if I sound this certain way, I am going to be a very appealing candidate. But at the end of it, you haven't really said anything and you haven't really told anyone, you know, who you are as a writer and why you want to be in an MFA program, why you want to be in a low res program. And why do you specifically want to be in my program? And, you know, the thing is, a lot of that seems so weird, but it's like a simple thing. It's just like, you know, make sure at the end of it, because you have, you know, not a lot of space in those personal statements is just make sure you're at least telling us, you know, the key things about why you want to be here. Because we get, you know, you get so many things where the tangents really cloud what feels like a really strong application. And I think the same goes for when you're talking to your recommenders. Um, You know, if your recommenders are not writers, if they're not, you know, for instance, if you are somebody whose career was marine engineering beforehand, and you don't necessarily have a very strong list of um, writer recommenders, like, you know, just make sure when you tell them, like, I would love this recommendation, that they can speak to something that actually applies to your role in the program. You know, maybe it's your work ethic, your ability to organize and um, self-manage if it's not, you know, this person knows how to break a line perfectly. And those are the kind of things that 
the simplest, simplest stuff is just make sure that it's one task. And then otherwise, you know, just submit your best writing. Take some time to really work on your writing samples. And, you know, if it, if it means that you're going to have to, you know, maybe get some, some help from friends with some feedback and some edits, you know, do that because we, we really sit down, you know, with our admissions committees, we really sit down and we, we read the work and we want to make sure when we tell you that you got in, we told you, you know, why. And we also tell you where we think you can grow. And, you know, when we get to stuff that, you know, riddled with typos or just has some very clear indications that um, the application was rushed, we don't have time to really get to do that. And it's, you know, not about us in our economy of, you know, how much stuff we have to do. It's more so about the fact that we want to make sure that you're ready to get the kind of feedback that you're going to get in the program. And it all starts when you apply. So just putting forth that effort from the beginning and, you know, letting us know, like, this is why. I'm ready. Why I want to be here. You know, the kind of stories that me and Gail have about like, you know, this is when I really decided this is the point where I want to be in a program. That's the kind of stuff we'd love to hear because we're sitting here like, yeah, like I remember that. I remember sitting <laughs> saying, I hate like a lot of stuff in my life, but writing is still right there and I want to get more of that. So um, let us know. We vibe with it all the time. Yeah, I I just want to put big ditto marks under everything that Quentin said. And um, I think too, just don't try to force your voice into what you think the program wants, because any good program will want your voice to be its fullest self. They won't want you to fit into a box so that you sound like other students in the program. So in your writing sample, make sure that, that your voice is your own. And again, as Quentin said, you know, make sure it's polished so all the typos are out and it's readable and all of that good stuff, but that there's a freshness to what you're writing. We want to see that, that there's, um, you know, good energy to it, that the energy sustains itself beyond, you know, the, hopefully what's the first punch of the opening. And these are things that I look for as an editor too, when people send work to, to journals, you know, I, I, I want to feel the voice from the start and to feel as if I'm reading something that's a little bit different from anything I've ever read before. So, um, yeah, just make sure you you bring your full self to the page and let us let us feel it. You know, Gail, I like that you mentioned authenticity in terms of voice. People have various reasons for picking the programs they pick. You know, we talked a bit about cost, but you know, sometimes it's there's a person you want to study with. You know, at some point. Other times, it's like the prestige of the of the institution. But if you feel that you can't be authentic in your application, maybe take a step back and ask yourself why you want to go to this program. I will tell people, you know, there are a lot of other big name programs out there that are very competitive. Everyone's stabbing people in the back to get into and to complete once they're in. And, you know, when it comes down to what's going to happen when you, when you leave there, you got to think about what you want to get out of it. And it hopefully it's something that's about your writing and that you're writing your stories in the best way possible. You know, that you're not writing the solstice story in the best way possible. And if you don't feel you can do that with the application you're writing to this program, 
you know, again, step back and evaluate if this is an application you really want to send, um, especially like if you're not getting a, you know, a, a waiver for the application fee, you know, put that money towards a place where you know, you don't have to be somebody else to, to write what you want to write. Because the thing is, you know, whether you're in workshop or you're working with your mentor, there's going to be a lot of places where you're challenged in a way that maybe skews your writing, even if the attempt isn't there to make you write differently. It's just that, you know, you're, you're a sponge, but, you know, even sponges don't hold all the water. So when you're trying to figure out what actually works to who you want to be as a writer for whatever project you're working on or just in general, you have to be aware of the places where you're folding into something purely for the sake of trying to fit what's needed. You know, again, can't stop yourself at the application process from falling into it. You're not going to be able to stop yourself once you get further into the program where, you know, maybe things are more competitive or, you know, you're taking every piece of feedback to you're overworking everything you're working on. So um, if you don't feel like you can be your authentic self, again, just reevaluate, you know, is this the place I want to be? And is there somewhere else that maybe I don't feel like I'm having to try so hard to be a certain kind of writer? Wow. Yeah. Quentin, this makes me want to have you on another episode where you talk about authenticity and overworking. It's the eternal struggle. Thank you so much, both of you. You've given such amazing information and advice. Um, is there anything else either of you want to share about how a writer can get the most out of a program once they are in? I think, you know, just come in with the desire to learn, with curiosity, and also, of course, you know, the, the readiness to, to dive in deep. I, I feel really grateful that both programs where I teach are both very nurturing. They're both really rigorous. So um, we'll push you hard, but in a way that is also kind. You know, before I entered my MFA program, I had heard such scary stories about writing workshops and how cutthroat and competitive they could be. And it was really such a delight and a relief to discover that the community within this program was so supportive, was so encouraging. Everyone wanted each other to succeed and we did what we could to help one another succeed, you know, while still not just praising, but, you know, giving each other really, really good information about how we could grow or how we could dig deeper. So I think, yeah, just being ready to support those around you and to open your heart and mind to the advice that comes your way. But as Quentin was saying, uh, you know, of course, we can't take every little bit of advice to heart. So one of the important parts of being in a program like this is developing that internal radar that lets you know when feedback hits home. I find that it's either feedback that uh, affirms something that I had known but hadn't really articulated to myself, and also the feedback that I resist the most, that kind of rankles me the most. <laughs> I find that often the feedback that I need to listen to most clearly. And sometimes I have to step away from it a little bit and cool off and then return to it when I'm feeling um, just more detached and and ready to, to listen. Yeah. So I think just, you know, be ready to learn, to grow. You'll probably be a different person and a different writer when you leave the program than when you began, or perhaps not different, but more fully yourself and just be ready for that transformation. Be open to that transformation. 
you know, Gail, I'm over here fist pumping to all of your <laughs> points because, you know, those are spot on. I'm very honest when I'm talking to prospective students. I'm very honest when I'm talking to new students. And one of the things I tell people is like, there's a lot of reasons, you know, beyond, you know, again, tuition, faculty, why you pick a program. But, you know, just make sure that you're going to actually work on being a better writer. And a lot of that goes into all the points that Gail mentioned. But just keeping in mind that, you know, one, the job market for for us in terms of academia is is super competitive. And it has been for a while. And it's only going to continue to be more competitive. And, you know, a lot of people still do get MFAs because they want to teach at some point. And I think that those are the kind of things that while you know, good to have, you know, don't let that be your only reason for being there. You know, don't let your expectations be around also being discovered and, you know, being the next uh, writer whose novel turns into a Netflix, you know, series of films or something. You know, these are things that happen. (laughs) They're weirdly happening seemingly frequently. But, you know, if they don't happen to you, uh, if no one's, dear God, where is the person handing me my $1.2 million check? or a script or something, you know, uh, that's, that shouldn't be the thing that makes you feel like your, your MFA experience wasn't what it needed to be. Because at the end of it, if you focus on the fact that you were there to, for the self-fulfillment of being a better writer, you're going to get everything you need out of it. And it's, you know, it's not to say that these things can't happen, you know, um, in terms of teaching, Uh, My friend I mentioned earlier, Daniel Summerhill, now teaches uh, as an assistant professor out at uh, Cal State Monterey, you know, and he started that job six months after he graduated from the program. We have, you know, one of our alum is a Fulbright Scholar now. We've had alums who, you know, 30% of our alum now have books that are published and you know many more where books are coming out so like we, we we say these things we say like you know this this success is possible but you know we also have a good amount of, of alum who you know they continue to write and they they do it for joy you know they're submitting stuff but they're not necessarily doing it to push towards some goal of like i have to get this book out in the world and then i have to win my mba and then my pulitzer you know they're doing it for the joy and if you remember that? If you remember that point where you were sitting down saying that, you know, I want to talk to somebody about how great writing is for like two hours, <laughs> that's what's going to carry you through. Uh, and it keeps your expectations realistic and level and makes you be invested in why you're actually there, which is the task of writing itself. Everything else will, will definitely come in its time. We have more than enough viral tweets that talk about, you know, my first book didn't come out until I was 65. There's going to be so many of us who are in that position and it doesn't make anybody any less happy to be a writer when they look back on it. I am feeling so inspired and excited and I know that all of our listeners will too. So thank you so much, both of you. Uh, Could you both tell us about how to find you uh, as a writer and your programs? Um, sure. Uh, you can find me at www.gailbrandeis.com. It's G-A-Y-L-E-B-R-A-N-D-E-I-S. And, oh my goodness, I think um, Sierra Nevada's website is sierranevada.edu. I believe Antioch's is antioch.edu. It may be antiochla.edu because... Um, 
the MFA program is is yeah, it's based in <laughs> it's based in Los Angeles. Yeah, and for me, um, my website is Q Collins Writer. Um, that's Q C O L L I N S Writer dot com, and that's my handle for Twitter, Instagram. So if you're looking for me on social media as well, also there are buttons for that on my website. And for Solstice, we're at pmc.edu backslash MFA. Uh, We're based uh, out of Pine Manor College here in the Boston area. So that's, again, pmc.edu backslash MFA. Thank you for listening to the Indie Writer Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and will subscribe to hear our future episodes. We want to thank the Writing Block community for the continued support. You can find us on Twitter or Facebook or at writingblock.com. Remember to subscribe, share, and tell your friends. Thanks, everyone, and happy writing. Mm -hmm.